Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself, you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around, pay attention. Maybe something isn't quite right. That voice is me. It's the voice of Gord. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. A little housekeeping here before we get to today's content. You're going to see links in the show notes here and uh, a Substack post about my friend Kevin. A guy I've met to interview on this show, one of the, one of the aims of this show is to get older guys on who aren't necessarily online and have great and interesting stories to tell. My old friend Airport Mayor from Burning Man, a.k.a. Kevin Bowman, is currently fighting pancreatic cancer at a facility out in Reno, Nevada. He wasn't able to go to Burning Man this year. Uh, They discovered it in July, and he's currently undergoing uh, chemotherapy. And uh, I was wondering if any of you guys got a spare spare couple of bucks you can send his way for his sort of... You know, they rented a uh, Airbnb for him to stay at when he's not in the hospital. And one of his relatives is there helping him and, you know, just trying to defray the costs of all that. So have a look down in the show notes. You'll see uh, a link to, I believe it's a GoFundMe run by his stepsister. And then I'll have a Substack post detailing uh, more about the life of Kevin Bowman and what a great guy he is. And uh, hopefully he pulls through all this and I finally get him on the show. Speaking of today's show, we're going to bring it back, bring it back to the road here. Got a really interesting trucker I met on Twitter, a fellow by the name of Wes Harmon, who's had a very long and interesting life before finally coming to the trucking business. You know, from being a professor of English and a radio guy and working in big tech and living in Grenada and traveling all over this wonderful country called the United States of America. Wes has been to 49 states before he even got his CDL, which is quite something. He's a, yeah, very interesting guy. Glad I got to meet him on Twitter. And we had a really awesome conversation here a few weeks ago that I'm finally getting out to y'all. Pardon the delay. Recent news from the Middle East this past weekend kind of did my head in a little bit. I mean, the internet's awesome and we get to communicate and see lots of things and well sometimes those things aren't very nice and yeah anyway thanks for listening i hope you enjoy this show with wes i got lots coming up here in the way of content got a few ideas for substack i'm going to be going home to canada to meet chase barber this coming weekend so stay tuned for some content on that i recorded another episode with Chase with some updates from Edison Motors and how his prototype diesel electric trucks are doing. Got interviews with all kinds of people already booked. I got long haul Paul Marhofer coming up soon. Just tons and tons of stuff here for you guys in the coming weeks. I'm also going to be on the road starting at the end of next week. I'll be coming through Wisconsin and then out to Wyoming and then maybe to visit the aforementioned Kevin Bowman out in Reno And then I'll be heading down to the Future of Freight Festival in Chattanooga, Tennessee, hoping to see a few of you folks there. Or maybe somewhere along the way in my travels in the next couple of weeks. That would be really awesome. 
Stay tuned to my Substack. I'll be posting regular updates there. Seeing as how they kicked me off Twitter for a fourth time, didn't even get two and a half days into it. The spooks really don't like me. All right, enough about that. Let's get to Mr. Wes Harmon. G'day, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. I'm Gord, and this is my voice. The other voice you're about to hear <laughs> is much more suited for radio than I am. Uh, what a wonderful guy. His name is Wes Harmon. I ran into him on Twitter, and then we started yapping on the phone as truck drivers are known to yap. Wes is a trucker. I believe he's a lease operator or owner operator with Prime, mm-hmm. who everybody either loves, hates, or just sees them all the time on the road. Uh, very interesting character, former uh, college professor, PhD. Again, as I mentioned, a voice for radio, very lengthy and interesting life story before he even gets into trucking. Just an amazing human being. And I'm so happy to have him on the show. Everybody welcome the other voice you're going to hear today, Mr. Wes Harmon. Hey there. Good evening, everybody, or good morning or whatever. Uh, in the interest of clarity, in the interest of clarity, I do not, in fact, have a PhD. I've got a master's degree, and I was a professor of English uh, and taught at kind of mid-tier schools that don't really necessarily require one to have a PhD. So um, thought about it. Kind of glad I didn't. I don't need the debt. I'd be still be paying that <laughs> off if I'd gone back to get a PhD. Wow, you're, you're talking um, about debt, and you now you own a truck. <laughs> now I own a truck, yeah, seriously, right? I mean, I'm just insult to injury. Uh, but making, oh, golly, what am I doing? for $5,300 $5, a month in payments on it, so I'm knocking Oof. it out. Oof. Oh, yeah, 1300 some a week. But I went for a three-year note because I know I'm going to have enough money to pay it off after a year and a half. So, oh yeah, it, 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 it sounds like you uh, are good with numbers to, in order to make that kind of decision. I have no no expenses really, other than a storage unit and my cell phone and my smokes, pretty much. So, um, I pay what insurance on my pickup truck that I drive. 200 miles every month and a half that's about it you know where do you park not... where, where do you park your pickup truck uh, the pickup stays here at the terminal in long-term parking which is and where here in springfield missouri right so uh prime prime hq oh yes the belly of the beast as it were i mean our terminals are pretty luxurious it's one of the one of the benefits of driving for this company but this one makes Salt Lake City and Pittston look kind of ridiculous by comparison. So can you describe yeah. for us these uh, luxurious facilities they have for yeah. their um, indentured servants, sharecroppers, oh, yeah. and various other quasi-free labor? Yes, indeed. Um, well, let's see. I mean, uh, there's a 24-hour grill, so you can roll in, as I did uh, just under a week ago hit the lot, get parked at 2.30 in the morning, and then go get a freshly grilled steak or cheeseburger or cut a fish or whatever, which is nice. Um, there is a buffet line 
that runs breakfast, lunch, and dinner during common hours, but they shut that down at like 10 o'clock at night. You can still eat. You just can't get whatever the hot meal for the night is. Um, there's a gym, obviously. There's a basketball court that's huge and full-size with a viewing gallery and everything. Um, the gym's got its own shower room, but upstairs are, they just expanded this. It's probably two dozen shower rooms upstairs. They're probably an equal number of bunk rooms. So if you get in and just can't, can't envision sleeping in the back of your truck again, you can come inside and get a room with a bed and clean sheets and air conditioning and all that stuff. Just kind of nice. Uh, there's a store uh, and they sell trucking stuff and logo wear and uh, useful gym cracks like, you know, heavy padlocks and uh, CB radio parts and stuff. Uh, there's a daycare uh, for employees. Um, so because there's so many people that work here, that it really only makes sense. Um, and it's big. There's tons of kids. You wrote, They take over the gym every morning for an hour. And you can walk by there and peek through the blinds. And there's got to be 30, 40 kids in there. So it's really well used. So um, this is th this as the sort of main central hub of Prime Incorporated, uh -huh. um, not counting drivers. Yeah. How many people do you think work there? Oh, God, I wouldn't even begin to estimate. But I mean, there are there's tons of people who work on the corporate side and then everyone in service. Um, in the various you know, mechanical jobs. Um, let me finish out on the terminal, though. There's a, a spa with a massage function, so you can get a fancy boy haircut and a massage, or one or the other. Uh, there's a mailing service. There's a chiropractor. There's a health clinic, which does all of our own um, CDL physicals and can give you you know, get you prescriptions for things. I get all my blood pressure medication through them, for instance, because I'm fat and old. <laughs> um, right. aren't, aren't we all? Yeah, there's a sleep clinic down there, of course, because a part of the scam is um, is CPAP, and they're eager to issue CPAPs to everybody. I'm trying to think of other actual features. Oh, upstairs, of course, there's laundry. There's a computer room with a printer and all that stuff, free Wi-Fi in the terminal. Pool tables and ping pong tables upstairs. There's a theater upstairs. TVs all over the place. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything. I will probably remember some things that I missed. But as for mechanicals, so you can come back here and get your truck worked on any brand. And we have um, Pete's International Straightliners and Volvos. Very few Volvos. An, an embarrassing number of internationals. Um, a few, a good number of Pete's, and then of course loads of Cascadias. Right, Cascadias so I'm, I'm trying. Truck. I'm trying to square this with a cultural, like a pop culture reference, and the uh -huh. first thing that comes to mind is the Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns <laughs> recognizes Homer after Homer got a hair treatment. As you know, who is this? Uh, you know, who is this young buck? And then Homer gets the keys to the executive washroom at the nuclear plant. You know, right. I'm, I'm hearing about all of this fantastic facilities available for uh, owner operators and drivers at prime. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm thinking about that episode of The Simpsons. Maybe I'm dating myself. And I, you're da- dating us both because I'm over here laughing at the reference because I completely <laughs> get it. Um, yeah, I, we've both been alive long enough to remember when The Simpsons was was uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Was, was good. Uh, well, yeah, good <laughs> might be the word for it, but was considered to be. You know, a, a cultural threat as opposed to a cultural phenomenon. So, but like I say, I love the terminals, and uh, Pittston is the smallest of the three. Salt Lake City is really large. What the best thing about them, honestly, is the mechanical guys who are really aces. Um, I've had any trouble getting with a repair that got done here at the company shop. Right. Well, that's good to know. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. over and above looking after their drivers, they, you know, I I appreciate what they're doing here as far as, you know, trying to make sure that their trucks and equipment are all tip top. And, you know, right. um, it, one of the a recurring theme amongst many of my owner operator friends is the uh-huh. uh, lack of good service. Um, parts suck. Uh, right. shops charge too much for the crappy service you get right and um if prime is trying to address that by having um you know top top quality in-house service at their own facilities um kudos to them for that i really feel like keeping the the equipment in good working order whether it's you know company trucks or owner operators or lease ops who pay for a certain number amount of their services or the trailers um, I feel like they're 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 out ahead of that, or at least are trying to be. And that's uh, we've all seen companies that have trailers are like, how the hell is that even on the road? Yeah, really. And <laughs> and seldom do I encounter one of our trailers that's so screwed up that I won't hook onto it. For instance, I've been a little over three years here now, and I could say there's I'm, I'm there's one that really sticks out where the tandems wouldn't slide and couldn't be made to slide. Took it to the shop. They couldn't even make them. Slide. Yeah. That's, that. that's so. fair. That's fairly common. I mean, things yeah. get, things get jammed and pins don't want to work. You know, it's right. That, that's not necessarily a black eye on them. Um, it was, it was lucky that they were stuck in a position that allowed me to roll leave. So I went ahead and took it anyway and got it filled, drove from Delaware to Memphis uh, made or north of Memphis, made my drop, and then the company said, "Hey, you know, you're only four hours from home. Why don't you just roll it on in? We'll pay you to bring it back to the shop." So that was awfully nice of them. Oh wow, no, good and good for them. Hat tip to Prime. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I have heard some negative things about Prime. Uh, oh yeah, I, I, I don't want to like take any digs, but I I follow a lot of academic research on the sort of lease operator model. Right, and I believe Prime was subject of a fairly substantial court uh, ruling, um, yeah. basically calling them out for misclassifying their employees. Yes, then that's—I mean—that's fairly common in this day and age. I, I hate to say it; it's not just in trucking. Um, I had a job in high tech. In fact, my last job in high tech, um, I was nominally a 1099 guy. Uh, but they had, uh, but I was using their equipment and taking orders from them and working in their office and all of that other stuff. So anyone who actually looked at the conditions of my employment would have understood that 
I was actually an employee and not a contractor, but um, the money was okay. So I kind of didn't care and I needed the money at the time. Yeah. I so, mean, that's what, that's why we come, you know, as long right. as, the, as long as the money is flowing, you know, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's hard to tell other people that what they're doing is bad if they're actually enjoying it. Right. You know, there's a lot of discourse out there about, you know, lease operator, 1099, right. this, this, this type of relationship versus that type of relationship. Yeah owner operator, you know, how much does the company look after? How much do you look after? There's all kinds of models there. And, Uh you know, I, I, as much as I can see how some people are abused through these models, I can also see like the small percentage of people that make it work, you know, how do you Mm -hmm. accommodate them and how do you judge them or their relationship just being an outsider so it's sort of a, I wouldn't want to call it a fraught conversation, but like, you know, you, you have to like take into account the, 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 the edge cases as it were. Sure. I mean, the variable is to me anyway, since the rest of it is more or less mathematics and luck, the main variable is how much is the driver? Um, how much, how much do you want to work? And I work a lot because I like the job. I like the lifestyle. Yes, so you I do. stay out for six weeks at a time, and that's. I mean, I turn. I'm after four weeks. I'm more or less an animal, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm, I'm out there making money. Um, I, I'm not speaking out of school here. As a lease op last year, I made just a hair under a hundred G's US, which is not sniffing at money. That's pretty pretty good. Did you right. catch that number? I had some PA going on over here in the background. Yeah, no, hundred hundred okay. grand. Yeah, Is yeah. That, That's after expenses, paying for the truck and that's, fuel and that's everything. After expenses, yeah. Yeah, so, so you, you did all right. Yeah, I ain't, I am not complaining about that yet. And then then nope. having someone else have to do really the shittiest parts of the job of you know of, of, of taking care of the the financial side of it, taking care of dispatch, all of that stuff, finding me loads, the odious stuff that. We hear so many other drivers complaining about. I never have to do with load boards or brokers or any of that shit. No, that's I, yeah, that's all. That's all in house at Prime. Right. One, one, yeah. one, of, one of the reasons I became very attracted to you and your attitude and uh-huh. um, uh, drew me to the legend that is Wes Harmon. Oh yes. Is on Twitter. You uh-huh. used to refer to your um, weeks out on the road as campaigns. Still do. And, yeah. you know, um, another fellow trucker who's probably going to listen to this, whom you're aware of, uh, uh, Mr. Mike Lombard. Oh, um, yeah. He's 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 really into, like, uh, uh, studying Napoleon. He's a Napoleon respecter. Sure. And so the sort of crossover with, like, you know, the military terminology, there's a lot of right. veterans in trucking. Oh, and, for sure. And when I first saw you re- reference it as a campaign, I thought, oh, man, is this guy a vet? Like, wh- wh- yeah. where is he getting this lingo from? You know, it's, you know, I, I, it is a, and I think this is probably something that will resonate with a lot of other truckers. I mean, their our relationship with the world is often somewhat adversarial to it, where we're struggling with shippers and receivers and four wheelers and other truckers and idiots at truck stops and, I mean, on and on and on, there's there's barriers that we have to overcome by perseverance or ingenuity everywhere we go. And so it's not 
combat. No one's going to equate this to the horrors of actual physical combat, but the, the struggle is real. And the fact that it has a beginning and an end and it ends. I mean, we're lucky in that we can say when it ends, we can say, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go on home time as I do every (laughs) six weeks. So we get to end our, our war where, and you know, actual service people don't have to, but, um, I feel like the conditions while we're out here are fairly similar. We're doing a job all day, every day. It's punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And the rest of it is struggling against organizations that kind of don't give a shit about us. And anyone who's ever served in any of our armed forces is probably nodding their head at this point. Yeah. Thinking, yeah. yeah. That yeah. sounds like big green in a nutshell. man. <laughs> Right. Well, so my, my family history in the business, you know, my dad was a trucker, yeah. both my uncles, right. my grandfather and my, my grandpa, um, you know, rest in peace. Right. James Ewart McGill uh, mm. dro- drove a tank across Europe, a Sherman in Canadian yeah. uniform. Yep. And then uh, came back to Canada. Didn't necessarily get into trucking right away, but his experience fixing Sherman tanks and the sort yeah. of, you know, vicissitudes of the combat campaign lifestyle lent themselves to driving a B model Mac from Hamilton, Ontario to Winnipeg, Manitoba and back when the trans Canada highway was still mostly dirt. And there was, there was no bunk on the truck. Right. (laughs) uh, Man alive. Yeah. when, When you, when you use terms like campaign, it makes me think of the tougher stuff my ancestors were made out of. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, this is, it's, this is, and I, I not, again, not telling you or any of your listeners, anything that you don't already know, but, um, this job quote unquote, ain't for everybody that there are people who just can't handle this level of commitment and deprivation and to that you have to undergo in order to do this job effectively. Um, our ancestors had it, you're sleeping outdoors, you know, cradling a rifle, for weeks and months at a time the conditions obviously are materially different but the level of commitment's fairly similar you can always walk off the line as a combat soldier you'll end up in jail or shot but there are choices you can make um and and they were i i feel like this is a job for modern day tough guys and tough women considering what is it nine percent of drivers these days are female You've really got to have a certain uh, a certain inner strength to be able to do this job effectively. Yeah, well, the, the, all of the things that are out of your control, you know, rolling into a distribution center with a set appointment time, and they're like, we didn't know about that, and somebody else oh, made yeah. the appointment, and there was miscommunication, and now you're there for 10 hours, and then Wait. all of a sudden they make you be in a big rush to go somewhere else, and you're – the, the typical cycles of human existence get blasted away in trucking. You know, oh, yeah. Everything is dictated to the, the hours of service and the scheduling for your customers. Right. You as the human being are like last on the list. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's... again, you, you mentioned it. It's not for everybody. And yeah. it takes, it takes a certain personality to, adapt and to deal with these adversities and make it work right that's absolutely true and i think that that's one of the things that contributes to 
what probably used to be a stronger sense of community among truckers back in the day than we have now, but there's still a, a community. I mean, you can, again, you can't say brotherhood with more or less one in 10 drivers being female now, but it's kind of a brotherhood. I mean, we all go through very similar experiences, no matter what the modality is. Brandon, a flat better has different challenges than I do hauling reefer. Um, as does a tanker or an LTL guy or a line haul guy or whatever, but we're all out here doing, uh, doing the same fundamental job. Doing the work uh, as my friend, Oliver Bateman likes to say. Yes, indeed. We are truck driving. So how did you, so Mr. Harmon, um, yes, you know, it, yes, that, yes. That, that, perf- that perfect <laughs> caramel, silky smooth radio voice of yours. Oh, the, the ladies love it. We, uh, we made allusions to your previous careers, your yes, master's indeed. degree, uh-huh. your, your teaching of English. Um, uh-huh. can, can you tell us a little bit of your life story and how it is you went from a uh, little baby Wes Harmon to oh, yeah. master's degree to uh, owner operator at Prime. Oh yeah, um, I born, was born in Williamsburg, Virginia, and anyone who's ever been a tourist in Virginia has probably been to Williamsburg. It's a town that's been rebuilt as a, a whole town of colonial era buildings using colonial era methods. The Rockefeller Foundation knocked that out back in the fifties and sixties. So I was born in Williamsburg, granted, in a hospital that was modern and out of the colonial Williamsburg area. But my dad had a General Motors dealership there. Um, And we we had a farm up in Charles City County, uh, west of Williamsburg by about 20 miles. So um, so I went to, you know, usual elementary school stuff. But growing up on the farm was the the big thing that I, I really didn't understand how much it was going to shape my personality really until I started driving truck. Um, so I'll have to circle back to how growing up on a farm actually impacted me um, for the good. We, uh, he decided he didn't want to be a car dealer anymore. So he wanted to go back to school and get a Juris doctor and become an attorney. So we moved to Richmond. We left the farm, which was horrible for me. Uh, moved to Richmond so he could go to and get his JD, which he did. I got put in his alma mater, which is the fancy boys school, St. Christopher's um, in Richmond and did fine there. I mean, I typical uh, dissatisfaction with living in the city was the cause, root cause of most of my, uh, my issues at school. Um, I still wanted to be out in the country messing with goats and horses carrying a 22 rifle around and getting a suntan and shooting snakes and, you know, doing country boy stuff. Um, made it through, got shipped off to boarding school for my last years of high school. Cause ultimately my parents couldn't, couldn't control me. Uh, I had gotten into the punk rock scene. And <laughs> I know that I was there for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I showed up with a, Mohawk one morning or with my head shaved another morning or with a black guy the other morning. And, and eventually they're just like, I don't know what we can say to him. So, and they were worried because they didn't understand, didn't really try to understand. So they shipped me off to boarding school. Grades improved. I'm out in the country. I get to sail three or four times a week. It where, was where, where is this boarding school? I always thought the, that was like rich people sending their kids to fucking Switzerland or something. It it would be if it hadn't been Christchurch and Christchurch Episcopal school for boys in the town of Christchurch, Virginia. 
um, is right on the Rappahannock River. So it was only about 60 miles from Richmond, uh, but 60 miles out of Richmond and into the country. So there was no more drink for me, sadly. Uh, no more reefer to smoke. Um, <laughs> all I had to do really was was toe the line and be a good student, and and they would let me sail, which we had done growing up on the my farm. Our farm was right on the James River, and so my dad taught me to sail there. So I sailed a little bit even competitively at Christchurch. Graduated from there finally with excellent grades, and then went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Um, which is a, a fine school and was even then. It was building its reputation as a computer science school. But the school wanted a more well-rounded uh, liberal arts kind of environment on campus. So uh, they gave me some scholarship money to go and, and uh, be a creative writing major, which I did. My habits being my habits, I didn't get along with some of their ideas about how people should be educated. So ultimately, I left Carnegie Mellon, uh, went out to Stillwater, Oklahoma to finish my undergraduate at Oklahoma State. I had my first radio job while I was in Pittsburgh, um, and that was doing part-time stuff at an alternative rock station up there. wasn't very good, didn't last very long. But I got out to Oklahoma. My stepfather was in radio, um, and he connected me with the program director at the number one country station in Oklahoma City. So I started doing on-air on work there, um, which ultimately I was able to maintain on my own merits, not just through nepotism. Uh, that sounds like so. a good that sounds like a good name for a website, you know, the number one country station in Oklahoma City. Or maybe it, a no I mean, or maybe a novel, maybe like some, you know, uh incubus hipster purple-haired woman in Brooklyn trying to imagine what life is like in the in the in the vast great plains of America you know the, the, the yeah. number one country station in Oklahoma City I mean you were definitely people didn't move to Oklahoma City back then it was unless they were coming from somewhere else in Oklahoma now it's people are going there from all over the country from you know LA New York Seattle what have you. Um, but back then the only people I was talking to on the radio were uh, Okies were actual country people and not only just country people, but country people who liked country music. So it was a subset of Okies, um, a lot of whom were, you know, farmers and farm girls, thankfully. And um, I was the only announcer at the station who was single. So when it came time to schedule an announcer to go, say, to Graham's, the local, one of the local country bars, to run a promotion on a Saturday night, I always took that job, A, because I got paid a little bit of money, um, B, because I would usually drink for free, always kind of nice, and C, get up on stage in front of a bunch of sweet country girls who were half in the bag, start talking like this. They're all like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I can I can so, I I can I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, so I was happier than hell to take those jobs. I met a lot of nice girls, and honestly, I I tell my son who's seventeen, he's seventeen six four two forty already. Oh boy, he's a he's a moose. And I keep trying to get him to move out here from Washington State, saying, you know what, the way you're built, you could walk into any room in OKC, and if, presuming there are women your age there at least one of them is going to look at you and 
hey, you know, here's this mountainous young man. I, he, I bet he could sling a lot of hay bales. I might take him <laughs> home to be dead. Um, it was, uh, you know, they, they were definitely good times. Um, finished at Oklahoma State, moved down to New Orleans and worked at WNOE, the country station down there. Um, there's a country, up, there's a country music radio station in New Orleans. Oh yeah, it was pretty well rated too. It wasn't number one in town, obviously, with a as as diverse a, a listener base as they have down there. But well, uh, uh, yeah, NOE was of, pretty good. Speaking of that diverse listener base, I've only ever been to New Orleans once, so yeah. I'm I'm a moron. I don't I'm I'm I, I claim ignorance about this stuff, sure. but like based on what I've heard about it from all the people I know who have mm-hmm. been to New Orleans and who have spent time there. Yeah. I don't, I country music doesn't immediately jump to front of mind. Many other music does a lot of yes. music, a lot of creative oh, output yeah. for sure. But country music's not up there. Our number one competitors, the stations that always beat us were going to be, was going to be like solar R and B obviously um, later. And we were, I was there right as hip hop was starting to happen culturally um so there was another black music station that was doing very well that was about our equivalent in the ratings and then there was a rock and roll station that did very well so our main competitor was an r&b station and a rock and roll station and then with this kind of dark horse no pun intended dark horse hip-hop station coming up and i haven't i haven't seen a ratings book from new orleans and donkey's years but I would expect whatever the hip hop station is in New Orleans now has got to be number one with a bullet down there. Um, But there, there are plenty of country people around New Orleans and they would come to the bar we used to deal with on the regular was called mud bugs, which is slang, local slang for crawfish. But mud bugs was a big country bar back then. And, the same pattern applied down there where I was the single guy. I got sent to do the promotions and I got to meet all the nice Cajun girls. So, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it quite as much as I did in Oklahoma city. And either it's either the quality of the ladies and I don't want to disparage Louisiana women, um, or, or that I was becoming jaded. And so I'm just going to say I was becoming jaded with the experience of meeting hot, country girls every weekend oh um, gee shut your dirty mouth <laughs> oh yeah no it's there's terrible a, there's a bunch of lonely truck drivers listening to this going you asshole you, you asshole you you you, <laughs> you who before you ever got in a truck were already well versed in traveling the country and deliver, oh, yeah. delivering hot loads oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man dude yeah, oh yeah. It, this is what do what do they call it? Humble bragging? Like not yes. Yeah, a little bit of that, I'm afraid to say. Um, I was in love with a woman. I moved to New York City to be with her, I lived up there for a year. So I actually have a year of experience in the urban center. Um, enough to know I don't like it and don't want to live in a city like that. Um, it was expensive even then. It's ridiculous now. I just don't derive enough of what I need from life to, to justify the expense and the amount of hustle I would have to subject myself to, to, to live in a place like New York. So, right. Well, um, you, you mentioned, you mentioned a son. 
mm-hmm. six foot four and two forty yeah. and all that. He's a moose. Uh, that um that that implies a, a woman who bore him. There was indeed a woman who bore him. I met her when I lived in Vegas. We haven't got there yet. <laughs> uh, oh, but man. we're heading in that direction. So we're, we're uh, New Orleans to Vegas. We're hitting all the oh, no. party spots. Went from New Orleans to New York City. Left New York City. Lived in Arlington, Virginia, Northern Virginia, for a couple of years, working at Mutual Broadcasting System. Uh, back when they were still a thing, they were bought by Infinity Broadcasting right around the time I left. Um, but that was the network that had Larry King and a bunch of others, Jim Bohannon and other crap that a lot of truckers listened to on AM radio overnight. Um, but I was working a office side job for them, not doing anything on the air. Left there to go to North Carolina to the number one country station in the Winston-Salem in the, the Piedmont Triad, they like to call it, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, and High Point. And that was uh, WTQR. Um, so I worked at WTQR on air and as a sales guy and a production guy, um, that, that lasted for a while. My dad called me up one day and said, you know, your old grandparents are, they're really having trouble taking care of themselves. And they lived on a, can't call it a farm. It used to be a, used to be a horse property, but they didn't have horses anymore because all their kids were grown. Um, out in Goochland County, Virginia. And they said, you know, your grand, your grandparents kind of need a, an extra hand. So I'll make you a deal. If you'll come up and look after your grandparents, you can live in their what amounts to their servants' quarters, which is a little stone cabin out kind of out in the woods. Um, and look after them, take care of the grounds, make sure they get to doctor's appointments and groceries and stuff. And I'll pay for grad school. So that was a I, deal. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. I mean, it was a state university. I went and enrolled at Virginia Commonwealth University in their English master's program. But I got to live out in the country, which was really kind of a a big thing for me. I finally got to live in actual country where there's owls and possums and raccoons, deer and snakes and all the good shit. That sounds like my backyard. I mean, I live live fairly close to Ithaca, New York. It's eight miles north of me, but... Right. I have I have all of those things in abundance. They really like my compost piles, especially the yes. raccoons and the possums. Oh, I'm sure. I'm certain. So I was there, oh, I don't know, a couple of years, finished my master's program, went to start looking for teaching jobs, and really couldn't find any. And that was what I had intended to do, was to teach uh, either – uh, high school at a private school or at some sort of mid-tier, um, some sort of mid-tier university or even community college would have been fine just to kind of learn the ropes. I left Richmond. The, my general manager from WTQR in Winston-Salem had since moved to Las Vegas. We finally catch up with that part of the story. Had since moved to Vegas to be the sales manager or VP of sales at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, the big NASCAR track. I call him up and I said, you know, Howard, I got, I've been looking for a job. Now that I've got my master's degree, I can't find anything. You've got anything out there you can think of. And he said, hey, you know what? Just fuck it. Just come on out here. I'll figure it out by the time you get here. That's a, that, that, that's a very, that, that seems a, a distant memory, that type of employment contract arrangement right. where 
you make a phone call with someone you sort of have yeah. a tenuous relationship with, but they need somebody and you need a job and yeah. you just kind of, everyone's flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah. You know, in, in, in the modern age with the HRification of everything, right. And, uh, everyone having instant access to info about each other on the internet. Yeah. You right. know, I, I, I don't know how much of that still goes on. And I, I think that's sort of like what, like one one of the lost factors in right. having having a life of adventure, as you know, Bronze Age pervert might put it, in sure. our modern age would be you know making deals like that on the fly and just come what may, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and this was ninety nine that I got out there. He put me in charge of guest services, which had been an utter disaster for two years prior. Speedway Motorsports had bought. Had taken over the speedway two years before. The, a major part of the revenue stream is is hospitality. So, say Caterpillar was one of our big clients. Caterpillar would bring out say eight thousand people, give them race tickets, promise them a good time. Um, the ticket eight, sales are one eight thousand. Oh yeah. So for people from dealers all over the country, they might offer them a choice of junket. Uh, my dad used to get these through General Motors a lot when he still owned his dealership. Um, but there would be, you know, they'd say, well, you can, we can, we'll either send you to uh, the Speedway in Vegas in February for their early race, or you can, you know, maybe we'll send you to uh, the Indy 500 or we'll send, you know, some other big sort of uh, festival or event like that. And I'm sure they had a few, maybe, you know, maybe like Hawaii or something like that. But, Crazy, but a, a great number chose Vegas because you know Vegas. It's got its charms. Um, first year, our caterer flipped out the day of the race, so we were feeding VIPs hot dogs and peanuts. That didn't go over so well. Uh, <laughs> second year, the caterer stuck, uh, but was but stunk. So we had to rebuild hospitality from the bottom up, and Howard. <laughs> Having worked with me in in Winston Salem for a couple of years, felt confident that I could swing that and did. Um, we made a pile of money. Everything went off smoothly. It was loads of fun, actually. Went to was close enough to Mexico that when Y two Y two K happened, my choice was to. I drove down to Aya San Luis Gonzaga, south of San Felipe on the Baja Peninsula, stayed in a little beach motel where I could, you know, have ready access to cold beer and warm tequila and hot girls. Um, and my uh, thinking was that if all the computers in the world are going to blow up, I want to go somewhere where there just are no computers. So I went to the middle of nowhere in Mexico with a shortwave radio, tuned in, BBC World Service <laughs> at like five after midnight London time to find out if if you know London was burning or not, um, and it seems like everything was fine over there. So we, my brother, went with me. We relaxed a little bit and uh, went back to the bar and finished out our night. So, wow, I, you know my Y two K story. In 1999, I took my first trip to Australia, uh, a place I have uh, a long history with, uh, mostly right. because I'm obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I, I ended up working for this guy who owned a tour company 
um, that took people on four wheel drive camping trips through the sort of center of the country, starting in the right. South near Adelaide. You know, you go up through the Flinders ranges, Gammon ranges, get on the Udnadatta track, go yeah. up towards Cooper PD and then like make your way, you know, you go to Ayers rock and the McDonald yeah. ranges. And anyway, um, I got, uh, I got, I got slotted in to be part of a tour uh, as part of my pay package, such as there was any working for this dude. Right. I went with one of his tour drivers on the Y2K tour. So basically uh-huh. we were going to be the original plan was that we would be at Ayers rock on the night of December 31st, 1999. Nice. Nice. And, um, our driver, this guy named Nick, he he kind of like you know there's there's this like Toyota Land Cruiser troop carrier and there's like you know nine passengers plus Nick plus a trailer all our cooking gear everyone's stuff and along the way we started like having this like democratic process about like you know what what do you guys want to do for Y2K I mean we're we're going to be in the outback you know if anything happens we'll survive <laughs> and everyone's consensus was all all the people on this tour was that they didn't want to actually be anywhere near anybody. Yes. And we ended up settling on uh, camping out near a Creek bed on a, one of these very large cattle stations in Outback Australia. And Nick Uh knew the people that owned it. And so we camped out there uh, East of Ayers rock. And yeah. uh, the only people that came to hang out with us were uh, some folks that lived at this, you know, uh, cattle station. So like four people drove out and met us where we decided to set up camp. So sure. there was like, there was like 14 of us and we had some like sparklers and we grabbed all the scrap firewood we can. Cause you know, like Australia is known for being desert, but there's like, there's scrap right. brush and mulga trees and you can get. Oh, yeah. So we, we have like a big fire and we all had steaks and we bought beer and Cooper PD and nice. so we had like steaks and beer and like underneath the outback sky, a gazillion stars and galaxies, right. nobody around. Right. Right. And um, there was actually like this one Australian girl on the tour. She was from Melbourne. Her name was Rachel and uh-huh. I won't get into what went on there, but anyway, um, yeah, we had a good time. Excellent. That sounds like a good time. Uh, too long a flight for me. I hate air travel. I could never swing it, honestly. Um, my brother went to Australia, though. Um, Cooper Petey's interesting. I've certainly seen it in films. They're uh, trying to remember that movie Ground Zero with Christ. There was a trying to remember the name. Was it the same guy that directed Gallipoli? I think directed Ground Zero, but it was that that had a scene that was shot in the the kind of cave houses in Cooper PD, which I found always kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, what I find interesting about your comment is the, um, I, I feel some empathy towards your position on flights. Yeah. Um, truckers are the captains of their own ship in a way. Yeah. And when you get on an airplane, especially on a long ass flight to Australia or some other far, far flung location from North America, uh-huh. you are trusting somebody else to drive which is not something right. we are really good at. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, um, sitting in one place all that time, um, doesn't, doesn't appeal to me. Uh, trusting someone else to drive doesn't appeal to me. 
the experience of going through airports doesn't appeal to me. There's really no part of it that I like. And it's, it's okay that you get where you're going. And I'll still get on a plane in case of emergency. If my kids needed me or something, um, I would certainly get on a plane to be with them. But yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'm, I would sooner drive to where, I mean, I've been to 49 or 50 states before I ever started trucking and did all of it on wheels and would have gotten to Hawaii if there was a bridge. But <laughs> as it is, I, I am not likely to get there unless I'm sailing there, which I suppose I could do. It's not the hardest sail to the Hawaii. It's the getting back is a bit of a bitch though. Um, but in Vegas, I met the lady that gave me my two children and my daughter is, uh, what is she? Is she 20 now? No, she's 19. Um, and she also lives in Seattle. Although she's out on her own with a partner now, and my son, I believe, still lives at home uh, with my ex-wife. But she was going to grad school, uh, cute, short hair, real smart, um, seemed game for anything, um, seemed like a very loving person. I used the word seemed a lot, and there's a reason for that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so she wanted to, she decided to move to Seattle to do her graduate studies at U University of Washington. My brother was already up there, had lived there for many years. So I thought to myself, hey, you know, I, I'll have a little bit of in with somebody. So fuck it, I'll just give up at the track and move to Seattle and be with her. So moved to Seattle, lived with her. Everything seemed great. Uh, we got married. Uh, we had kids. She finished her. Um, that's when I first started working in high tech, uh, during that period, she finished her PhD about eight months after, uh, I had my first company buyout and mass layoff experience where we had a digital games company for mobile phones, even back before smartphones, those dopey really? little games. Yeah. All the dopey little games you'd play on a flip phone, like, you know, snake and stuff like that. We had. Brady Bunch Kung Fu and a bunch of other shit like that. <laughs> Just terrible, terrible ideas and terrible games, but we were getting funded and it was fun. And I was in employee number seven. So I was in at the, literally the ground floor. We built enough value. The main way we made money was we developed the text message voting system for American Idol. <laughs> so uh, so that was that was where most of our actual revenue came from and it was it was actually pretty decent um but i didn't have a lot to do with that i was working on the marketing side and just kind of being a, a boy friday uh handling all the odious shit in the office that the c-level people didn't want to do right well I, the, imag I imagine if there's a problem with like you know communication someone's got an issue yeah you know the, the, they they channel that problem to you and then this like yeah. sil silky sweet caramel voice comes on and sure. it immediately diffuses the situation i would think the ceo and the cfo both I, I still know the cfo he's he's divorced and lives down in puerto rico and is having a great time he's neck deep in crypto he's a wonderful guy the CEO, I, I never really talked to anymore, but he's the CEO of the Perky Jerky Company, the people who sell caffeinated beef jerky. 
He's based out of Denver, and that's <laughs> where they where he came up with the idea of caffeinated beef jerky and more power to him. Hey there, Brian. Good to see you. They're both named Brian, interestingly enough, so I'll just say hi to both Brians at once and be done with it. But to circle back to the, the actual life story part, she finished up um, at UW. I'd been a stay-at-home parent for about eight months and really liked it. It was kind of the happiest time of my life up to this point. So she got her first job teaching at a university in Northeast Missouri at Truman State. So we went out there. She didn't like it. So we moved back to Seattle, lived in Seattle for a year. She got another job offer at St. George's University in, in Grenada in the West Indies. So we got down there. I was excited. This whole time I'd been a stay-at-home parent. So I'd been a stay-at-home dad for a couple of years now. Got to Grenada and they said, they, oh, you've got a master's degree in English, do you? I'm like, yeah, I do, actually. Well, you know, we might have a use for you. Do you want a job teaching? I'm like, yeah, I, I think I might. So there was uh, both kids for school aged at that point. There was a Montessori school on the island that was lovely, truly wonderful. Gr Grenada Montessori Prep was the name. So we put both kids in school, and I went to job teaching, went to work teaching English to kids at the medical school in Grenada. And it was a mix of American students and students from Grenada and then students from the larger African diaspora. A lot of uh, people from mainland Africa um, who were receiving funding from their governments to study medicine to come back to Botswana or, you know, some uh, you know, otherwise third world country and practice medicine in, in recognition of the fact that they weren't growing doctors of their own and they needed doctors. Um, and had a lovely time down there. My ex-wife fell out with the chair of the graduate school. So she got fired. Um, our marriage had kind of sort of been on the rocks for a bit at that point. So there was a part of me that was like, you know, I'm still employed. And we were there on work visas. And without a work visa, you're on a tourist visa. After 30 days, you have to go. So there's a part of me that was saying, you know, without her work visa, she's going to have to go after 30 days. You could just stay and keep the kids. But I'm, I, God help me, I was born with this sense of morality and doing the right thing. So instead of staying in paradise and working a job that I actually enjoyed, it was being very well compensated to do with my kids who loved the island and loved the food and the people and the culture and all that. I came back to the, to the States and she and I split up about four months later. Um, I drifted, still worked for the Grenada people for another year and a half by telecommuting, uh, taught at another local university. And, and I'm, my main teaching, my courses are, I teach writing. So I teach business writing, creative writing, and academic writing. Um, if I'm lucky, I get to teach a poetry or fiction workshop. Uh, poetry workshop has got to be my favorite. I really enjoy the, both the workshop system um, and teaching poetry. Um, and I would teach literature on occasion. Um, and so that the college writing or the advanced uh, academic writing, sometimes that was remedial academic writing. One of my previous guests... Mm -hmm. uh, a show I released last week is this fellow named Emmett Penny, who is now a electrical system grid critic analyst, uh, 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 nuclear power booster, 
and he started out in poetry. Like you, his first undergrad was studying poetry and he wrote poetry and somehow he's now, he runs a newsletter that discusses energy issues and he's like an electricity dude. Like, <laughs> I don't know. You connect. It's so weird how life sends people down these paths. And, yeah. You know, you can start out with something as sort of like nebulous and weird as poetry and then end up in the hard sciences. It's yeah. Amazing. I mean, it's uh, poetry is one, it's one of those things that, that happens as a result of your mentality, really kind of no matter what you're doing. And you'll find poets who are farmers, uh, you, know, and, you know, poets who are mechanics, you'll find poets who are uh, executives, you'll find poets who are rich people who are, uh, for instance, the case, case of Charles Bukowski, you'll find poets who are alcoholic, degenerate gambling whoremongers. You know? <laughs> so it's, uh, it really takes, it. it's, it's, not so much a type as a calling that you just, you kind of have inside that you can't, the only thing that can fix what you're feeling inside is to write about it in the poetic form. Stayed in Seattle for a long time um, with my children. Uh, housing prices went up. My last high-tech job devolved. So I couldn't afford our apartment anymore, which after Amazon moved into Seattle, and this is ultimately is the root of the homeless problem in Seattle. And I just experienced it firsthand. My, I had the cheapest apartment in the crappiest building in the best school district in Seattle. So my rent went from $1,400 a month. They doubled it my, the first year after Amazon moved in and then added 50% to it again. So I went from 1400 to uh, getting up on you know 3500 or so. What? Um, yeah, over the course of a year and a half. And I, you know, I, I lived up there, sold my car. I had, you know, cut my expenses down to the bare minimum just to keep them in a good school district. And it just wasn't going to work anymore because this apartment was literally two miles from Amazon's new urban campus. So a lot of people who are on fixed incomes, who are working class, who, uh, old folks, uh, you know, public public servants, things like that, found themselves priced out of the city. So I didn't really, I, I, I spent all of my savings, all of my credit, uh, cashed out my retirement, spent everything I had, keeping a roof over their heads, looking wow. for work. But ageism is a real thing, and especially in high tech, if you're pushing 50, um, they, uh, they're like, oh, you know, this guy's got kids, he's got a family, he's going to want too much money. Whereas some kids straight out of college, we can boss around no matter the quality of his work. Right. Um, we can make him into the thing we want, presumably. And if not, we'll fire him and get some other, you know, nebbish who doesn't understand the value of their labor. I found so, that I, I found that with both trucking and I, I, I took a stab <laughs> at trying to start an electrical apprenticeship a few years back. Yeah. And um, the the local IBEW union hall was advertising that they were seeking apprenticeship trainees, and I thought, right. you know, maybe this is my ticket out of trucking. Yeah. And I went down, took their tests, had to do a bunch of algebraic equations and competency tests and all that stuff, and passed mm -hmm. all that, no problem. And then I right. got invited to an interview, and they said, you know, well, you're forty. Yeah. Right you're going to be taking orders from people who are much younger than you. And I said, that's not a problem. 
there's no problem here. If if some guy is 25 and has yeah. completed his electrical apprenticeship and knows more about electricity than I do, yeah. I have no problem with this. No, they, no. They they had it in their head based on the experience of hiring other older guys that it just wasn't going to work. And yeah. like they they literally like they were very upfront. They they discriminated against me based on my age. Right. And I I I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and went, well, whatever. I'll just keep trucking. Oh, right. Yeah, there. That's I think I find that's a, a fairly common factor in a lot of modern businesses and their hiring practices. Uh, they've they're they're all they're making all manner of assumptions based on whatever wherever the hell they get their information from, without knowing really ever knowing the people that they're talking to or about. Because they they feel like they don't have to. Oh, you know the the conventional wisdom always applies, and it doesn't. The companies that have hired me in high tech have realized that yeah, we need someone who can do Photoshop and Illustrator and write things and stuff, but we also need someone who can take on special projects that none of us have time for, and who's competent enough, both technologically and in terms of just you know sheer intelligence. Um, to be able to completely own one of these weird projects and and make it a success. So, um, but it takes a certain sort of visionary type C-level guy to meet you, uh, to be able to have him make that call to HR and say, yeah, I don't care if he agrees with your statistical analysis, bring him on board, give him the papers today. And that's how it's worked. And regrettably, it just doesn't really work like that anymore. So, try lost. Another another problem with um, measuring people's competence I've found over the years is the sort of HRification of things, where there's a metric, but uh-huh. like the, the the trucking business and certain trades and certain jobs, you know, this is not unique to trucking. Right. Is that there's no metric for, you know, willingness, for ethic, for right. the grind required. You know, as we started the show, right. uh, tr- trucking is one of these jobs where you just have to accept uh, the unknowns and being abused and, you yeah. know, the, the sort of things you expect in the military. You know, you know, not, not, not the, like, vicious stuff on the battlefield of being shot at, but, like... Right. Uh, hurry up and wait. Um, right. You never know what's coming down the pipe one day to the next. You never know where you're going to end up. You're going to get treated like crap by people as right. part for, as like part of the job. And the willingness to tolerate that and then to respond to it and be yeah. successful in your response and rolling with all of these things that get thrown at you. Right. That the personality qualities that measure for that or account for that are hard wow. to quantify. Yes. And you can't like, the, the, there's nothing, there, there's nothing that's going to tell a potential employer about your ability to roll with all that stuff. Other right. than basically you, your reputation. So uh-huh. if like you leave one company, your boss is like, wow, that guy's really good. He figures it out. He's got his stuff together. Right. But there's no credential for it. There's mm-hmm. no measurement for it other than right. like you just keep doing it. 
Right. Right. I mean, to one extent, to some extent, the soldier or the service person has it a little bit easier because they're based in units and you can enter as a, as a spec first class, you know, you've got basic training or a machine gunner, you're da, 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 but your first lieutenant, your sergeants, your corporals all are going to be living with you and dealing with you, uh, on a daily basis, especially when you're actually doing what you've been trained to do. And the, the private soldier who, who shows some gumption, some leadership ability gets noticed by the sergeant or the lieutenant. And when it comes time, you know, when a, God, God forbid, one of your sergeants or your corporals uh, takes a bullet, has to go or retires or rotates out or whatever, you get a chance to get promoted into those positions because your first lieutenant knows, yeah, this is a guy who gets it done. He's, you know, he's smart about the way he fights. Um, our business is, um, by its very nature, is solitary, of course, unless you're a team driver. But in a, that case, you're dealing with someone who's a peer and not uh, an authority over you. So your, your, your team driver is not going to promote you. Whereas if you're a soldier, your lieutenant might notice that, yeah, this is a guy who would be a great sergeant. I'm going to recommend him for a promotion. The only, the, and these aren't even really official metrics, but someone, if there's someone wanted to hire me in my post prime years, which may or may not happen. I never, I never know. I don't think that far ahead, honestly, my on-time percentage is 100% after three years, which I'm proud of. And I've gotten to be where I'm almost paranoid and protective of it because That's even fantastic. though it's, yeah, I, I, I am. I'm not necessarily sure how that has happened other than um, the skills required to get your load in on time, the combination of driving and trip planning and stuff like that. I've applied my intelligence to it. Um, a, lot so of a lot of it's paying attention and being able to roll the punches and figure yeah. out alternative routes and plan right. ahead and just, yep. j just sort of being forthright and thinking about the task at hand. Yes. Um, my safety record, I knock on wood, meaning my skull, um, as I say this, my safety record is good. I've had, um, uh, no preventable accidents. The only, I had some dumb rookie bullshit where I swung the front end of my truck into a bollard. Everyone's got their stupid, dumbass rookie story. And that's mine. I wrecked the fucking front end of my truck on a bollard in New York state, uh, cause I was in a hurry. And you learn not to be in a fucking hurry. You get out and look, or you look at your mirrors. Even that's the uh, number one. That's the number one thing. If there's any rookies listening to this podcast, which is nominally about trucking, but goes yep. off in many different directions. Sure. But if you're listening to this and you're thinking about getting into trucking, or you're only just started, uh, don't let anybody rush you. Right. Uh, whether you're in a yard at a dock, someone's telling you to get out of the way. Everyone can sit tight and wait for you to do things properly. Right. You know, drive your own truck is the advice I give. Yeah. That's because, really all you can do. That's right. Because at the end of the day, if anything happens and you're the guy behind the wheel, you're going to take it. You're taking responsibility. Exactly. And, and, and it is yours. It is yours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, think about it in that way. And right. you'll get in less trouble. That, that would, that, really sums it up i would give the exact same advice just don't be in a hurry 
you're you're not alone out there obviously you don't want to be a dick but by the same token you don't want to let some guy who's in a hurry to get out of the truck stop put you under pressure when you're trying to back into a space when you're still very unsure about your backing ability you'll learn how to back but you can't learn how to get preventable accidents off your record so <laughs> no right so take your time do your thing let them honk their horn let them flash their fucking lights let them do whatever makes them feel good yes we all know you've been driving for 800 years and you're you know, you're you're the professional end all professionals go do that by yourself somewhere else later as soon as i'm done parking my rig hey and i i you know this is a good jumping off point for something uh-huh. that like i think you'll agree with and i think many of the listeners to the show will agree with because i am a snob and I curate sure. my listeners. And if you're a fucking right. idiot, um, by, um, uh, by chemical processes which you cannot possibly understand, yes. you're not ever gonna actually hear this show. Right. It's um, you know, yeah, it's it, it's al- it's it's alchemy beyond your comprehension. Right. Right. However, um, for those of you who are listeners to this show and experienced you already know this you're the kind of guy or gal that gets out and helps you see a rookie and you can feel them it's a force it's a vibe you you my experienced fellow truckers are master yoda and every time you see luke skywalker rolling in on his airspeeder you instinctively know to get out and help them back up you instinctively know when they're about to make a mistake and you get on the radio and say something, or you jump out of your truck and you go help them and you are there because you are a member of the Jedi and you understand Mm -hmm. that the young Jedi needs some assistance. And if you're the kind of person that's just out there complaining and bitching and in a hurry, the you you've gone to the dark side and you need to, you need to reconsider what you're doing for certain. I mean, I helped a guy, me and another old timer helped spot a guy into a really hinky spot in Kansas City shit, a week and a half ago, right before I came out on home time. Um, but my first week on the road, I had a horrible day. Got to the a truck stop in Tennessee, like two minutes left on my clock, dropped it into off, off duty. I'm doing the sleeper creeper around trying to find a spot to get into, found a spot couldn't figure out how to get into it relatively tight it would be tight even for me today relatively tight and so i'm like well fuck it you know my setup was horrible so i'm gonna loop and come back around hope it's still there when i get back around doing four miles an hour and did got back there it was still open but now there was some old timer standing out in front of the truck next to the spot and he walks up and it tells me to roll my window down he's like man i'm glad you came back i was I was in my sleeper. I saw you struggling to get in there, but I you know, got up and got dressed to come out here and help spot you into the space. That's and the man, guy. I, that's the, that's guy. the guy. That's the guy that every truck driver needs to aspire to be to. That you, you are ready and you are going to help your fellow yeah. drivers, especially oh, yeah. the rookies, especially the Padawans. He didn't know that I'd had what's still probably in my top five for worst days ever on the road. After three years still, he didn't know I'd had a horrible day. All he knew is that I was not very good at backing and that I needed help figuring this one out. Um, so he spotted me in. Once I got parked, popped the mustard, 
he got over in his passenger seat, rolled the window down. I rolled mine down. We sat there and shot the shit for about 40 minutes. He's literally talking me off of the ledge. He doesn't even know it. I mean, I was like fucking, ah, there's so much stress. Um, can't even begin. I won't belabor the audience with that story because we've all had terrible days. Yeah, no, and and many yeah. such cases. You are not the only one. Yeah, in fact, you are right? one of you are one of millions. But this guy, it was a flat better. Um, he runs out of Oregon and does. Uh, I don't think it was a regular route, but he was heading back to Oregon with a flatbed full of stuff. Um, so. He sat there and we chatted for a little while. I finished my coffee. My blood pressure went down and finally I was ready to get some sleep. Um, and ever since that experience where he really made me feel welcome, he helped when I was going to have to figure it out by myself. It was like, it's kind of like a guardian angel showing up in a way. So when I'm in a position to help a rookie, or it really to help anybody, even an experienced driver. If it's a fucked up yard, and we've all been to those, if it's a tough yard, I'll get out in the middle of the night, and I'll get out in the middle of the day. I don't really care. It's not just because I don't want him to fuck my truck up. I don't yeah. want him to fuck anything up. Every, yeah. If everyone goes smoothly, we all go smoothly. Um, so, so yeah, I'm absolutely that guy now, and I wish I'd gotten the guy's name, that flatbedder who helped me out down in Tennessee. Um, because golly, I'd send him a Christmas card every year. He doesn't know the effect he had on me as a trucker, but he did, um, instill in me a, the drive to get out and be the guy who helps. And I, I'm lucky to be able to do that every you know three or six months. Um, but also to, to value trucker culture and the, the mutual aid aspect of it. Yeah. We are all out here alone, but you can't let all the time we spend alone prevent you from feeling like a part of a, big, a bigger thing, a bigger community, a brotherhood. It's something right. we touched on earlier. Um, we are in, all in this together, despite the fact that we're all individuals. Um, we are all kind of sort of fighting against the same uh, negative affect from uh, shippers, receivers, four-wheelers, and on, on and on and on, all of the things that make our days long and hard. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> um, so I, you know, and that's one of the reasons I got a CB. For instance, I remember being coming eastbound right outside of Omaha. There's a flatbedder coming by me. He's hauling uh, engineered angle iron, um, and one of the pieces has fallen off the back of his trailer. Is only being held on by the flange on the end of the the piece of angle. And the thing probably weighs, you know, 800 pounds or a thousand pounds. It's a big piece of, of steel. And I'm air horn, flecking lights, the whole nine yards trying to get his attention. Cause if this thing comes out from under that strap, it's straight up going to kill somebody. It's, I mean, it was a bad scene. <laughs> I couldn't get his attention. I'm of course a prime driver, so I can't speed up to catch up to him i'm doing 65 and he's disappearing into the distance and it was incredibly frustrating to not be able to at least see if he was on the cb and be able to tell him dude look you mean you need to be off the road right now work on your load 
luckily I caught up to him about five miles later. Someone had raised him on the radio and he's off on the side trying to get that thing back up on his trailer. Good luck to him. I hope he got it. Um, but that's one of the reasons I got a CB is that it's one of the main tools that tr of trucker culture. It's one of the ways we communicate with each other that we, we cooperate with each other. Right. Yeah. And um, in that cooperation, sometimes we do have to pull rank and sometimes yeah. we do have to act like cops. Yes. I don't like doing it, but sometimes it's necessary. And yep. I, I started out in flatbed, oversized, heavy haul, uh -huh. B train world up in Canada. Right. Coils, heavy equipment, machinery, uh -huh. bar stock, rod, plate, all the, all, all the steel things. And I, you know, I don't want to like besmirch anyone, but yeah. the whoever's in charge of teaching people how to tie down flatbed loads, uh, -huh. uh they need their asses kicked because I see so many loads going down the road where everything about the tie down situation is incorrect right. constantly as a reefer driver, nothing. It's weird. One of the few things that really just gives me a hard on, you don't need to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> it just really gives me a hard on is when a, a flat better passes me. And of course he's passing me because I'm a prime driver and his load looks like a Christmas present. The tarps are accurate. The straps are, are abundant and correctly placed. All the bungees are holding everything really snug. I'm like this dude is a pro. Baby. Yeah, no, you love to see it. And I mean, that's yeah. part of, that's part of like the entire aesthetic sensibility package. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, over and above the safety considerations of tying down loads for yourself in case anything shifts forward or falls off the trailer. Right. But like just making it look nice. Yes. It like you know, and, and, and truckers are at the like receiving end of uh, aesthetic dysgenic BS. In that, like most trucks are ugly nowadays. Yeah, everything is attuned to this like baloney fiberglass aerodynamic beige sameness, right. which I hate. I think everybody should just drive slow and look cool. But that's another yeah. discussion. Right. But, like, when you do see a flatbed guy that's, like, put some thought into it and done it correctly yeah. and it looks nice, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it gives you a boner. It's just yeah. another way of saying it makes you feel good. Right. You know? I mean, you, you you appreciate that it's another pro. It's yeah. another guy who's oh, really yeah. taken the time to do his job correctly. And, again, I don't know shit about flatbedding. I I, man, I know the most basic, some basic stuff about flatbedding really from talking to flatbedders. Um, but I, again, I know when it looks good, I know when I don't see a bunch of tarps flapping around that here's a guy who values not only the load, but his own equipment, knowing that fla flapping tarps going to wear out faster than one that's right. yeah. nice tightly tied. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be appreciated about this stuff and I'm not above getting on the CB now that I've got a good one. Um, and saying, I call every flat better. I refer to as flatbed Fred until I get to know his name. So I'll be like, you know, flatbed Fred, that's a beautiful load, man. And I'm like, oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you don't know who the hell I am, but though generally very appreciative. Um, oh, geez. Um, I can get us up to the current on that life story in about a minute. Um, my kids moved back in with their, my, their, my ex-wife with their mom. Um, I then had no kids. I lived with my mom who had moved out there to, to Seattle to retire. I drove a taxi for about a year and a half. 
And if anyone is starting to doubt, well, how the fuck is he doing all these things for a year or two years or three years? It's because I'm old. I'm 55. So shut up. <laughs> hey, listen, listen, this, this show yeah. is, uh, is, uh, is an age respecter, not yeah. an ageism disrespecter. Right. Uh, I'm 44. So I'm 11 yeah. years younger than you, sure. but you know, I, uh, I, I went to this thing in New York City this weekend, and I was like one of the older people there. Uh-huh. And you know, among the cohort of like online trucker guys I hang out with, uh-huh. um, yeah. I'm older than most of those guys. Yeah. So you will get no beef from me about being 55. In fact, about being a get, geezer. You'll yeah. get nothing. You'll get nothing but respect as long as like you don't do the sort of boomer con thing of thinking like everything is static. And right. the, the, the system you inherited is the same as the system we operate under now. Oh, no. Which a oh, lot no. of like, there's a lot of boomer con truckers, especially in sort of political trucker chat on uh-huh. Twitter and TikTok and YouTube and all that. And they, 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 they've they got like the whole zombie Reaganism thing where like America is amazing and everything's fine. And all you got to do is just like keep working hard. It's like, no, 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 no. There's systems at play that are yeah. in our face that are making shit not that easy. And yeah. they just, they, they don't even want to talk. They don't want to acknowledge it. Oh, no. Now, and, and you'll notice if you, anyone who ever, who visits my, my Twitter feed at just very predictably and unimaginatively uh, listed as Wes Harmon or at Wes Harmon. Um, I try to keep politics out of it generally speaking, but even despite being raised in a pretty well-to-do setting, I am, I am so strongly pro worker. Um, and my economics are entirely focused on, um, empowering the worker, but also, um, recognizing the way the worker is exploited. And for all of the things that working class people and even middle class people to the extent there is a middle class anymore have in common um, and should be able to get together around you note so that that quote unquote both sides or all sides are really doing everything they can to distract the working class from getting together around these things that are are common to all of us i don't have to like jason aldean's music Someone else doesn't have to like trans people. And those are all opinions that can be had uh, and argued at over, you know, argued over at a bar or, you know, at a, at a picnic or something at, you know, to, at, indeed, I'm raising my iced tea at you because I'm a goddamn teetotaling, non-drinking, terminal dwelling son of a bitch. Um, for the now. things we for now, <laughs> yes, indeed. Until my next home time stint, I did nothing but drink beer for the past five days. It's been great. Um, the things we have in common are the things we need to focus on, and that's the stuff to the extent you'll ever see political content on my feed. It's generally always talking about ways that working people are fucked and are being fucked, that there is, in fact, a class war in this country and in Canada, and, and, and I'm it's, sure. w- it's and it's waged. By all comers, there's no one who can claim, who can lay claim to being, you know, the the spokesperson for this. You know, the left always right. says, well, traditionally, Marxists and whatnot spoke up for the working yeah. class. But, like, 
the, the quote unquote the left have been yeah. taken over by the sort of like managerial revolution technocrats oh, sure. experts unions the the leadership of unions draw from people who've been like professionally trained at universities right. which tends to lean towards a, a particular case to people that didn't actually work yeah and you know and then the right you know you get some you get some people like i went to this book uh party last week for Sarab Amari's tyranny incorporated uh-huh. And he got like blurbs from you know Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio, you know, yeah. and and for whatever senators Mar- uh, Rubio and Hawley have to say, there's still a substantial part of the Republican Party and the right in general, who kind of still look down their noses at labor and who are very corporate and you know d- don't you know the, the Mitch McConnells of the world don't give a shit about truck drivers. No, they don't. And so this whole thing has got. It's got nothing to do with left or right, Democrats or Republicans. It's a class yeah. thing. And, oh, yeah. you know, the, the sooner people acknowledge this and set aside the stupid um, placements we've been given by the culture wars and by the political system and by the media, uh, yeah. the better off we will be. Right. Yeah. And that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I. I'm not in any way interested in the culture war shit. And that's, those are opinions I'll happily keep to myself. I don't talk about part political parties because in this country, in the United States anyway, they're all the same. They, the people that, that Joe Biden talks to when he goes out for some sort of fancy di- dinner are the same people that uh, Donald Trump or George Bush would talk to. The, you know, you, you see research that shows that productivity actually goes up when people work from home. But do you think Joe Biden, for instance, talks to mid-level tech managers who work from home? Or does he talk to people who invest in commercial real estate? And if the people don't go back to work, the people who invest in commercial real estate are going to lose their ass. So we have to come up with a reason to get people to go back to work. And Biden's reason, for instance, is, well, you just need to go back to work. And there's no benefit to it, but you got to go back there anyway. And it preserves the, the investments of the sort of people that he socializes with. And again, he's socializing with the same people that Republicans are socializing with. So when people run down the concept of there's no difference between the parties in this country, where it matters in economic terms, there is no difference between the parties in this country. And I'm sure the same thing applies in Canada. Although I, I will admit I'm, I haven't paid attention to Canadian politics since well, Jack Layton was I alive. I mean, you know, yeah. And Jack Layton's uh, widow, Olivia Chow is now the mayor of Toronto. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it, it is much the same in Canada. There's yeah. uh, the the Liberal Party and then there's the Liberal Light. Um, I have no confidence in the Conservative Party of Canada whatsoever. Right. They have they dropped the ball and everything. They were behind the ball on Freedom Convoy. Um, there's these this political prisoner situation with these guys in coots, they, which they will say nothing nor raise a finger to help about. Um, they're pretty much the same Laurentian elite as the people who support and continue Justin Trudeau's prime ministership. Yeah, Canada sucks balls, and the sooner the South Dakota National Guard gets together and invades Canada, <laughs> um, that's all it would take. Canada, Canada yep. sucks. 
Uh, the Canadian government has let our military degrade to the point of laughability. Yeah, I love Canada. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying yeah. these things because like I have any disrespect for the country I'm from. No. I'm I'm just being realistic about what's going yeah. on right now. And yeah, literally the South Dakota National Guard could probably take over the country. And I I, 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 I would for the record I, I love Canada. I I would welcome it. I I would yeah. welcome. Um, uh, Trudeau and the rest of the Laurentian elitists um, being put on a boat and floated down the St. Lawrence River and then, you know, I don't know, what, like some polar bears on ice floes or something to deal with them. I don't want right. to deal with them. They're terrible. I mean, it, they're, they're, if it they're were driving... possible to get rid of your leadership and our leadership at the same time. So if, if while South Dakota is invading Canada, can we get Ontario to invade the United States and depose our political leadership. Problem well, is, you're just it's musical chairs at that point. You well, I mean, this is it, right? There's like <laughs> right there, there, there's there's like people who are like legit realists about things, yeah. And there are people who are part of the sort of you know globalist technocratic managerial hegemon, yeah. And um, what side of that line you fall on has got less to do with what political party you're associated with. Yeah. Uh, but whether or not you're awake to this fact. Yeah. And um, yeah. Th there's many people who still don't get it yet. They're still trapped in partisanship. Yeah. Yes. And I don't know hey, about it. I, I don't know what to tell them. But anyway, <laughs> yep. so. um, on, onwards and upwards. So Wes Harvin, yep. you, 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 you've, you've now been working with Prime for three years. You seem yep. to be successful at it. Uh -huh. I've been following your campaigns, as you call them. Yep. And uh, as on, on uh, to try and end this on a positive note. Sure. I, I would like to know what, if any, suggestions, advice, wisdom, or re re revealed divinity you have to share with other sure. potential lease ops at Prime owner operators, truckers in general, or you know maybe teenage young dudes or dudettes listening to the show because like you seem to be full of wisdom of all sorts like indeed what what what, what do you have to say to people like bring it bring it bring it uh i will do it with respect to to prime um i think the what will bring you success as a lease op or at least purchase guy um, company drivers kind of get what they're given and like it and they're going to make a set amount not a set amount but a relatively consistent amount every year. Um, they just lack a lot of the freedoms that truckers generally take for granted, you know, the ability to pick your own loads or to turn down loads and take your own time off and stuff like that. Um, they get health insurance, which we don't, which is nice, but the lease op gets a lot, a lot more freedom. For instance, you can choose your route, whereas a company driver has to drive on the company's route which would drive me crazy because oftentimes the Navigo system on the Qualcomm send, wants to send me somewhere stupid. I don't want to do that shit. Fuck all that. You want to send me through Atlanta at 4.55 in the afternoon? Fuck you. No, I've got a better idea. Um, and I know how to execute it. So um, the, the main thing I think that led to me being successful as a lease op for the year and a half that I was a lease op here was being out here to drive. I'm not a trucker to sit around at the fucking terminal, despite the fact that I'm currently sitting around at the fucking terminal. Um, I'm not 
constantly in the terminal. You've, I've mentioned this a couple of times. I'm out for four to six weeks at a time. I'm six weeks at a time now because I'm paying off a truck and I want to make sure I get my note every week. So I don't start getting in the red. It's so hard to get out from in the red. Um, you've got to be out here to drive and you're not turning down loads all the time. You're generally speaking, if you can do a load, you take the load. If you, if it's possible within the constraints of the time you have available, you'd go ahead and take the load. In my case, I get to be a little selective. They want to send me to, I turn down a load to, um, to the Bronx and then to Northern New Jersey, both places listed as being incredibly tight for road rigs. I'm like, fuck, I don't need that aggravation. This is paying, you know, right at two bucks a mile. Fuck all that. Next load came in was shorter, but I was making 260 a mile on it. So I wasn't in any way feeling bad about letting the people of New York have to resort to eating pigeons for an extra day waiting for a freight that I didn't carry. For people who are thinking about getting into trucking in general, my method of not having a, not having an apartment, I could have one, I guess, but I'd never be there. All of my stuff is in a climate-controlled storage unit, so I don't have to worry about my books getting uh, fo- getting foxing in them, which are you know, the little brown spots that they get on the paper. Uh, my books will be in great shape, my furniture, my rugs, my clothes, all that stuff that's in storage, my guns will all be in great shape when I go back to get them. So put all your stuff Ooh, in the tell, tell us about your guns. Um, I've got a, a 308 Winchester um, hunting rifle, a Savage bolt action um, with a nice scope. And that's a great deer, you know, classic deer round. Um, I've got a Ruger AR model. Um, that's a nice mid-length gas, gas system. Um, bunch of good mags for it, bunch of ammo for it. They're all sitting in storage. My mom was a sheriff's deputy and an officer in the sheriff's department in Orleans Parish. She was a very dainty person. So I've got her, she had a 38, so the Smith and Wesson was a J frame. I don't remember the exact model number, the Alumalite five shot 38 special. Um, great boot gun for a guy my size. I just, it, I never, I don't carry in my truck. Got a double barreled 12 gauge uh, Rossi coach gun that was the same model that um, they sawed off to make the Mad Max gun, the, his double barrel sawed off kind of shot pistol that Mad so, Max carried. So a side by side break action. Yeah, with the rabbit ears on it. So it's, yeah, it was, it's dope looking. I've been debating the getting into a um, into an automatic or semi-automatic handgun. I think I've made a decision. I'm going to get a, a Smith and Wesson M&P uh, chambered in 5.7. Um, have I, I, always... I, I was at a I was at a bachelor party two weekends ago for a friend of mine who's getting married next weekend. Yeah, and uh, one of his. One of the dudes, there was 18 of us. We had like a work weekend. He's having like a uh, a country outdoor wedding, and we were helping him getting his land prepared. Right. But like, you know, when you get a bunch of dudes together for a weekend, you, you work for a couple hours. 
Drink some, some beer, and then you like break out the guns, and then you shoot some rounds off. And then you go back to work, and then you break out some more beers. And yeah, he had, he had a Smith and Wesson M and P forty five pistol. Right. And he was passing around for all of us to plink on. <clears throat> Plinking with a forty five. It's a. Oh, that's a is something. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the forty five round, and originally had intended to get a uh to go ahead and get a forty five. Maybe not a nineteen eleven. I'm not that much of a atavist, but um, despite the fact that I love both the look and the functionality of a forty the nineteen eleven, um, I like the five seven um, for a couple of reasons. It's super flat trajectory, muzzle velocities through the roof. Um, the round itself obviously is very small, but it's built on the same principle as the 223 round the the nato 556 round and that when it hits it tumbles and creates a gigantic and variegated wound channel super accurate um on account of the flat um flat trajectory that in the capacity this mnp if i remember right is 22 plus one so i mean that's a that's almost what an ar carries so you've got 23 shots if you if you can't neutralize a target or ring some iron with 23 shots, you ought to just give the gun back to the gun store. Uh, <laughs> and I don't care that the rounds are expensive compared to nine. Um, I don't care that in a post-apocalyptic world, 5.7 is going to be not the round you find when you're rooting through some abandoned home somewhere. Um, <laughs> in those circumstances, it'll be plenty easy to find a 9mm Glock in the bedside table of someone who died from zombie plague or whatever. I'm not worried about being able to source a nine to make use of the abundant scavengeable. Man, the, 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 these are the, these are the scenarios. Oh, yeah. One one is afforded the time to um, think on uh, with all these miles on the road. Yeah. I, I, I wonder how many other uh, truckers are similarly situated and ready for the zombie apocalypse or maybe when the, you know, managerial case finally immolates itself of its own yeah. stupidity and we are finally presented with Libertopia and we're all yeah. on our own, you know? Well, this is what brings me, um, and I'll, interestingly enough, it'll dovetail back to the, the effect of being raised on a farm for me. The point of all of this, uh, all of this trucking is to lay up sufficient capital and my mother passed away about two years ago. So I've, I have an inheritance from her estate, um, which will form the, the, a substantial part of a down payment. Um, certainly would be more than 50% of whatever sort of place I would purchase, but, um, I'm going to buy a farm for myself and primarily though, for my children in the belief that a, it'll be a, um, if I'm careful in where I select, it'll be a refuge for them and their families from um, the what you might expect from climate change, whether you believe it or not, um, in a place with sufficient or abundant groundwater resources where that's kind of likely to continue receiving precipitation um, and has plenty of surface water. So yeah, I'm 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 a little I'm a little more worried about the people who vo vociferously beat on about that rather yeah. than the problem itself as yeah. always as always 
you know, in, in the words of Jack Sparrow uh-huh. um, of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the problem is not the problem. Your attitude about the problem is the, is problem. the problem. Right. Right. And and and, right. and, 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 and all of these issues out there in the universe, whether it be, you know, climate alarmism or, right. um, you know, Wuhan plague, any of this stuff. Right. Uh, the, 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 like I say, the, the problem itself is not the problem. The problem is how our governments have reacted to the problem and they yeah. have reacted to it by using these problems as an excuse to consolidate power and be shitheads and tell all the rest of us how to live and fuck things up. Anything to keep us at one another's throats instead of coming together around the real issues. Right. Um, The second point of getting a place out in the country is, so what happened to my family where they jacked up my rent? I spent everything I had. Uh, And there's a lot of ways you can spend everything you have and end up homeless. Um, But my kids, I lost my kids in essence. Uh, because of financial situation that was completely beyond, beyond my control. But if they have recourse to a place that has an orchard of the sort that I would plant and garden space that I would of the sort that I will arrange um, and fenced pasture of the sort that I will arrange and solar power and a manual well as well as power wells and uh, maybe wind power and all of these other things, if they have access to that, they're going to be substantially insulated from the economic factors that the capital economy uses to force people to comply. If you can grow your own food, if you can, if your, your shelter is provided and is already paid for, um, if you've been careful in the way you've planned your existence, you're again, like I say, you're insulated from the leverage that the capital economy tries to put on you. And I know all of this firsthand because my daughter, for instance, is a type one diabetic, her insulin, a vial of her insulin costs five or eight bucks to manufacture. And they want to sell it to her for $600 because if she doesn't have it, she's dead. And say the climate alarmists are right and water becomes very scarce. This is, in my mind, why Nestle is going around buying up entire aquifers. Because whoever is going to control the water is going to be the one selling you the water. And in a dry, if it's, if we're like at Mad Max levels of dry, again, this is, you know, taking the, the paranoia perhaps out to the extreme. Would you do a day's work for two liters of water, well, or I would mean, you die? It's, it's 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 interesting you brought up Mad Max because the fourth Mad Max film with whoever that actor guy was, yeah. Well, I guess it came out in twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen. Yeah, and it was partly filmed in Namibia and Australia and all over. But like right. the, the the bad guys controlled the water. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's again that's kind of what the way I see this going, based on my experience with my daughter's insulin. Granted, my ex-wife's insurance is great, and pays for most of it. But if you wanted to go buy a vial of insulin retail, that markup is is unaccountable to any sort of reason. And if that's the instinct that the capital economy has toward the people it considers consumers. Water is another thing you can't live without. And they would do the same thing to us 
over water that they would do to her over insulin. So being in a place that's well watered, um, that helps to insulate them uh, with the ability to grow their own food, that they don't have to worry about shelter. They don't have to worry about the things that a human being needs to survive, with the exception, of course, of insulin. Um, but if she's got all that stuff provided for her, she might have enough money to be able to afford insulin. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah, on water, it's good to live in the Great Lakes Basin. That's and that's where I'm looking. I mean, I'm, I was born in Virginia and raised in the South and have lived in the South and consider myself a Southerner pretty much my whole life. Um, and I'm looking up up north. And I never in a million years would I, you never, when I was 21, I never in a million years would have thought of it, but being, um, on in the Northern Midwest from Michigan West, um, up to the Dakotas is a, is a strip where you find a lot of surface water, which of course is groundwater interacting with the surface. So you hear, uh, you know, read a real estate listing about a spring fed pond or a spring fed lake that a piece of property is on not only do you have the lake and all of its water but you know that the, the groundwater is only 20 feet down and that it must be in, there in sufficient abundance that it can continue to refresh the lake and you know as the water flows out the low point and turns into a local creek or river um, that there's enough water down there and it's being recharged sufficiently um, that it can keep all of the you know the land of 10,000 lakes it can keep all these lakes filled Minnesota, so, the land of 10,000 lakes. Yeah, Minnesota, Wisconsin are probably the my top two right now. There's, um, I quite like Wisconsin um, for trucker reasons. The roads are very nice. I love their truck stops. I've found more great truck stops in Wisconsin, I think, than any other state. Places that I would love to spend a 34 and give it a chance. Um, and, you know, hat tip to the Pinecone and Johnson Creek with those cinnamon rolls as big as a fucking baby's head. You know, <laughs> I, that's, the yeah, the pinecone might be my guy. This is a good reminder that I need to get back on my idea of doing a, 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 a truck stop episode where I interview a bunch of truckers about um, their favorite truck stops and where to oh, get I food. I gladly participate out. in that. Yeah, I, that's a, a, a recurring idea of mine that is just, got shunted down the priority list due to family work life right all the rest of it but anyway Wes Harmon I'm gonna bring you yeah. back on for that indeed and, please do uh, I I want to thank you very much for your time and oh, it's for been your, my pleasure your uh world weary insights <laughs> and um your experiences um as varied and diverse as they are I, right. I think you're one of the more interesting people I've met in the online trucking world. Oh yeah. And I, I really hope that, that um, my, my audience enjoys this conversation as oh, much for as sure. I've had. Oh yeah. And I say, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively easy to find on Twitter. That's really the only social media I use other than Reddit. Um, and I don't, I don't mind doxing myself on Reddit, but it's it's hardly worth worrying about there there are there is a decent trucking community in the trucker subreddit on reddit but um it's kind of it's not really anything like uh twitter at least twitter now we'll see what twitter becomes in a month with this knob end who's running it but yeah uh, i mean i i've been kicked off for a third time and i have you know people keep bugging me to come back and i just don't 
I no no offense to my friends and fans and yeah. associates. I just don't see the value in it anymore. Um, sure. M- Musk is here and there and everywhere, and he hasn't cleaned house enough. Oh, and no. um, the spooks are all over the place. I mean, that's why I, I, I've two of the three times I've been kicked off of Twitter have been care of the Canadian government. And right. I'm just not, I'm not wasting any time there. I'll just keep writing yeah. what I write where I write it. And yeah, you sure. Like it, you like it. So, well, I will, when I see a link to this podcast episode that's been posted, I will do my part <coughs> and post yeah. it up on my account and publicize it. I might even pin it. Yeah, well, it, it right. might be it might be a couple of weeks yet. I'm a busy guy. Oh, t- I mean, take your time. We're, we've yeah. got through the hard part now. We sure did. All right, Mr. Yeah. Wes Harmon, thanks very much for showing up on Voice it of Gord, sir. I really appreciate it. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. All right, way of the road.